This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's check in with our go-to medical center here amid this virus outbreak, in part because this is where the first U.S. case of the coronavirus was confirmed. Dr. Joanne Roberts back with us, Chief Value Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, on the phone from Everett, Washington. Dr. Roberts, really nice to have you with Paul and myself. Oh, great to be back, Jason. Thank you. So uh, let me just cut right to it. Where are we here as a country in terms of dealing with this virus? And I fear that your answer is not going to be a happy one. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm afraid it's not. And I think we've all heard heard from enough experts, including uh, Dr. Fauci and, and Dr. Osterholm out of Minnesota, and calling this, uh, rather than thinking about uh, covid in waves, I think we're, it's going to be for the next foreseeable future thinking about it as sort of a, a fire that's burning constantly. And that's mm. what we're seeing. And we're with hot spots jumping out here and there. And that's what we're seeing across our organization as well, across the seven states we serve. So, Dr. Roberts, again, you and your hospital in your area of the country, uh, the first hit. Talk to us about what you've seen and the life cycle just in your immediate uh, area. How are the hospitals dealing? How are the people's behavior? Um, just give us a sense of how it's evolving in your area. Well, again, I mean, I, I, I will speak for all of Providence, and we cover seven states. Uh, but the, the first hospital was our hospital in Everett, Washington, um, to take the first patient, and and that's where we really first saw the first outbreak in the in the country was in the Seattle area. Well, in Washington State, on the western side of Washington State, in Seattle, Everett, the Puget Sound, we've actually kept the case numbers down to a pretty low level. Um, and we're seeing uh, numbers of 10, 20 people in our hospitals on the western side of the state. On the negative side, on the eastern side of the state, the more rural side of the state, we've actually seen some significant growth. Uh, and that's one of our big hotspots. Uh, we have three hotspots across our seven states that we're watching very closely now. Uh, one is Eastern Washington, uh, one is Western Texas, and our fastest growing area is Orange County, California, mm. uh, by far. Orange County has become our number one hotspot across Providence today. And so, Dr. Roberts, what's consistent across those hotspots? What can you generalize? Well, I, I, we can all do our generalizations, but I think it all comes down to what our behaviors were in those hotspots yeah. two or three weeks ago. Um, remember, whatever we do today shows up two or three weeks from now in our hospitals. So the growth in those areas, I think, comes down to the, the issues of the masking, distancing, and hand washing that the science is leading us to, that if we do those things religiously, we can keep the numbers down. If we don't, we won't. It's just that simple. So it's unfortunate, but Dr. Roberts, it seems like a lot of the things you just talked about, masking, social distancing, and so on, have become politicized. Is there any solution you see, or is it just more more efforts, consi- consistent efforts, greater efforts on education? 
Uh, I, well, I think it's on us uh, as the scientific community to speak to the science, and then it's on our leaders uh, to underscore for their own states and their own communities what the right approach is. I won't pretend to say I know how, how best to do policy, um, but I haven't been impressed by several uh, local leaders. Our governor in Washington has been a very strong advocate for uh, enforced masking. Um, our gov- the governor in Texas this weekend uh, changed his mind and, mm. and said that this is really important. Uh, so uh, our leaders can change and our leaders can step up and set an example. If nothing else, simply by putting on a mask themselves, right. that would go a long way. And Dr. Roberts, when you look at the western side of the state, there where you are, and, and specifically in Seattle, because so many of our listeners are in big cities, do you have a sense that there is a there is a certain amount of reopening that can be done? Because obviously, this is ultimately both a health and an economic crisis, and it feels like that's the question that so many people want an answer to: is can we reopen in a smart and measured way? and still contain this? I think that we can. And I think Seattle, the Seattle area, is showing us how. Uh, Many workers, probably a disproportionate number of workers in Seattle can work from home. And most large systems, most large organizations are continuing to encourage their folks to work from home if they can. So that's a piece of it. Uh, And then those who are still are needing to come to the offices, I think, our companies in the Northwest have been very responsible in protecting their people uh, with insisting that they wear masks and, and, and really setting up their offices for more distancing. Uh, Dr. Robert, just qu- quickly before we ask you to come back, just give us a sense of how the, your folks in your system are doing, the healthcare providers. Oh, I think it's tough. I think yeah. we're going through a very tough time. There's a, you know, there, there is a grief curve, uh, and uh, I think um, caregivers – Healthcare caregivers across the country rose to the occasion of the acute crisis, and now that we're moving into a more chronic phase, it's hard on our caregivers. It's hard on our country, and it's especially hard on our healthcare workers. And we definitely are seeing more need for our caregivers, and that is becoming a huge focus for us: is how do we support our caregivers over the next three, six, twelve months right, as we right. move through this? We want to switch gears a little bit and talk about. You know, I think what a lot of people are really trying to focus on, we know a lot of smart scientists and other folks in the medical community are focusing on, that's treatments and that's vaccine. Give us just kind of the lay of the land where you think we are with getting a viable treatment into the marketplace and then ultimately a vaccine. Yeah, uh, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we are moving as fast as we are with treatments. We're moving faster than I had expected we would. Um, I think the finding out of England uh, with um, dexamethasone uh, for very severely ill people uh, and cutting the mortality rate, the findings uh, in our own system, we've been very heavily involved with clinical trials of several agents, uh, including remdesivir. And I think remdesivir is showing a lot of promise. Now Now the challenge is figuring out when is the best time to give remdesivir. Uh, is it early in the disease? Is it late in the disease? It's, it, we're that's what we're studying now. And then we'll be having uh, studies of monoclonal antibodies coming out uh, later this year. So I think that's all for the good. Nothing is a magic bullet. Everything is helping a little bit, and it, it will accumulate as we move through the year. 
And that accumulation, help us understand that, Dr. Roberts. I mean, that, that accumulation, some sort of acceleration toward both therapeutics and, and vaccines. You know, what does that look like in a realistic time frame for a, a scenario in which we're actually putting a dent in this in a way that affects our daily lives, if you, if you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I think I do. Uh, I think we are starting to see a dent in the mortality rates. And mm-hmm. we'll know that certainly in the next month because the uptick we're seeing in the virus itself is going to translate into hospitalizations here in the next week or so. And that will translate into sort of reliable mortality data in the next month or so. So we'll be able to tell in the next month or so how much of a dent, say, remdesivir has made. Um, but new agents are coming out, I would say, I think in terms of month by month uh, when it comes to treatments. And then I think of quarter by quarter when we're talking about vaccines. Interesting. Yeah. And so, Doctor, do you envision this being some type of cocktail, if you will, of treatments as it relates to treatments as we kind of get into the fall and winter? I do. I, I see it as a combination of drugs. Maybe they'll be given at different times in the trajectory of the illness. Maybe they'll be given at similar times. And I think that's still to be worked out. But I think we're already starting to see that it's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a series of small steps that taken together will will change the trajectory. And everybody's going to have to get a flu shot, right? (laughs) You bet. Yeah. If you can do one thing this year besides put on a mask, it's get a flu shot. Right. I mean, do you think that ma- – I mean, w- do you get the sense, the, just sticking with that for a second, that people are at least more aware of that, you know, the the importance of getting <clears> – excuse me – something that will, you know, help even tamp down the, the effects of the disease, any disease at, at this point? Yes, I do. I do, and I think we are seeing the reaction in the areas of the country that were hit the hardest yeah. early on are actually some of the areas we're seeing the best progress in. And I, I look at New York as a great example. Um, infection rates have plummeted in New York because people are taking it very seriously. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to that, and I, I think you can too, Paul. That yep, I mean, yep. our daily lives, whether it's our work lives or our personal lives, I mean, we have seen a, a pretty incredible and, and pretty broad-based reaction here. Uh, Dr. Joanne Roberts, thank you so much. Chief Value Officer, Providence St. Joseph Health. It's a big, big health system uh, dealing, unfortunately, with a lot of hotspots right now or several big hotspots as she laid out for us in Orange County in Western Texas and Eastern Washington State. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Paul Sweeney, I'm going to make a confession to you right here on the air. <laughs> Go for it. That confession is, is that I usually read most of the stories that we're going to talk about. You know, it's like, I, but sometimes I just read like half or something yep. just to get the idea because I feel like I know the writers are writers are brilliant. They're going to tell me a tale. I read every single word <laughs> of this story. It's so amazing. Uh, Austin Carr, tech reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. All right. So, Austin, I was like, I was intrigued by the headline, you know, sort of fire <laughs> festival. You had me there. Then pizza. But then this story just takes a turn because like some of your best work, it's got a personal aspect to it. Take us through this. Like, take us back to the beginning in, in terms of like how this story gets hatched for the heist issue. Totally. Um, so this is a really fun, but also, frankly, disturbing profile uh, of a guy named Ishmael Osekre, uh, who is sort of this 
alleged scam artist of the social media era who has proven, well, very adept at leveraging Facebook and, and the networking effects of going uh, viral to, well, uh, to you know, according to New York State, New York State Attorney General case against uh, this guy Osekre, to take advantage of hapless internet users. So, so this actually, this story, uh, both my part in it, uh, and I do play a role uh, backwardly uh, in the first person in the story. But it begins with this sort of infamous, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the Fire Festival, the quote Fire Festival of Pizza, uh, <laughs> this major event in September 2017, where. You know, this guy, Osekre, uh, launched an event called the New York City Pizza and Hamburger Festival. But in essence, <laughs> there wasn't really any pizza or hamburgers. <laughs> and leading up to the event, he'd promoted heavily on Facebook and tens of thousands of people liked or signaled that they were going to actually attend. Uh, but when ticket holders arrived on the day of the event uh, in 2017, they, they actually just found barely any food at all. The, the, the pizza slices were cut into sort of these hobbit-sized uh, miniature triangles, which if you find pictures online, you cannot help but LOL. Um, and th- they were sort of nowhere close to what the, the digital ads that have been pr- hyping stuff-your-face amounts of local thin crust and, and Chicago deep dish, et cetera. And in the end, nobody, none of the customers really got what they paid for or were promised. None of the uh, uh, vendors, a lot of them were stiffed out of their bill um, in terms of providing whether that's food or furniture for the event. And Osekre, according to the state uh, investigation against him, made off with $63,000 in ticket sales from this pizza and hamburger festival. Um, And so back in 2017, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got an email about the the event, which went viral, like the event itself. And it was just an old college classmate just saying, hey, do you recognize uh, this guy's name? And of course I did. And in fact, I, uh, from what I would soon learn, was uh, essentially one of the victims of uh, his one of his original grifts, you could argue. Interesting. So, Austin, what happened to Mr. Osekre? So, at that time, uh, he actually got away with the pizza festival. Um, it, you know, afterward, the only thing, the only consequence, really, was that uh, Eventbrite and Facebook and other platforms which he used to sell tickets, because there were such complaints online about the event, were able to claw back some of the money, but he essentially got off scot-free. And this has been a pattern. He threw a big event in 2016 where he made off with, again, according to the uh, allegations made in the New York State Attorney General case, he made about $111,000 in in ticket proceeds. So these are not million-dollar heists, but at the same time, they're so almost comically... Uh, and hilariously clever that you can't help but what, what grift he had pulled off, allegedly. Uh, yeah. But this story gets serious as we start reporting it. And it was just, I was both exploring this guy, um, who he was and what was driving him. He has this fascinating upbringing in Ghana. And then he went to Columbia University in the U.S., in New York. Uh, and that's where we had actually overlapped. And I just wanted to figure out, is this guy actually sort of the monster that the Attorney General of New York makes him out to be? Or has he just misunderstood? Yeah, I mean, if Carol Master were here, she would say, you can already see this as like a Netflix movie, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so cinematic in, in many ways. But take us back because you had, as you write really well in the story, you had a firsthand, you had a front row seat, as they say to this. Tell us about that scam because it's very instructive into what he allegedly, as you say, uh, turns out to be later in life. So back at, uh, this was like the mid-2000s at Columbia University, and, and some of this, I just, up front, I, I was a, a bit of a nerd back then. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, uh, I, was, I don't believe it. I was, You're the coolest you guy I know. <laughs> That's what my fiance says. But um, the, uh, yeah, I, I was at Columbia, and I was um, at this 
what was a student-run record label. We were just put on campus shows. It was very amateur, but very fun. And it was just to get kids, you know, our students who wanted to perform to get them some, some stage exposure. And we treated it like we were, you know, actually a legitimate record label, which we very much were not. Um, at some point uh, in 2007, uh, the same guy, Osekre, um, who had a fascinating upstory, which I, uh, upbringing, which I was not aware at the time of growing up in Accra, the capital of Ghana, you know, going to some, according to him, some of the most prestigious schools in that country and then making it to Columbia um, by the skin of his teeth, essentially. It's a very impressive trajectory. And, you know, he gets uh, to 2007, we're both overlapping, and he tells me uh, through a friend that he can book the roots uh, and quest love for this <laughs> Columbia University um, you know, performance, just a small... End like 150 end people, right? Yeah, the st- the, there was no stage in the room. Yeah. Uh, it was on a very, you know, fifth floor of just one of the student buildings. Um, and for some reason, I didn't think that was odd that we could book the route, <laughs> uh, who had at that time been playing Giant Stadium, uh, or what was called then Giant Stadium. And uh, lo and behold, the story just kept changing as we kept clo- getting closer to the event. Osekere would tell us that Actually, the Roots weren't performing. They were appearing as motivational speakers, whatever that means. Then it became only a DJ was coming. And it just kept evolving until it was a former affiliate act named Martin Luther, along with another rapper named Black Ice, uh, who was going to come to the show, provided we could provide $5,000, which, uh, just so you're aware, those are, for a student budget, was sort of Bon Jovi rate. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. So, and one so of the we things, not, Austin, just because yeah. we're about to run out of time, but 30 seconds, I mean, one of the things that he proves out at that point is he, he does manage, it looks like, to almost always stick somebody else with the bill. Correct. And, and yeah, in the last 30 seconds, I will just say uh, I was, yes, very much won over by his, uh, he was, even back then, you know, early days of Facebook, he was promoting it on the platform. And uh, had promised it was financed through a variety of student council clubs, and that just didn't turn out to be the case. And our club and a bunch of others were, were sort of stuck putting the bill in a pattern that would play out in the decades ahead, which is just a really fascinating story. I urge everyone to read it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really terrific. <laughs> it's really terrific, and, and you really do get a sense of this pattern of behavior and uh, – uh, bravo to Austin Carr. It's another great tale uh, by him, tech reporter for Bloomberg. The story, Fire Festival of Pizza wasn't accused fraudsters' first flop. And Austin Carr knows what it is. Yeah. Anyway, so it's a great story. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. You know, when the pandemic hit uh, and then the U.S. economy ground to a halt just so quickly, the Fed was right there. Uh, yeah. By most accounts, the Fed has done a wonderful job here dealing with this pandemic and the economic impact by injecting liquidity into the marketplace. They were early, uh, they were aggressive, and by most accounts, they were effective. Now the question becomes, okay, what have you done for me lately? What's <laughs> next? Christopher Condon, Federal Reserve and U.S. Economy reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Herndon, Virginia. So, Chris, again, the Fed's done a good job. What do Fed watchers expect next out of this Federal Reserve? Right, Paul. Well, basically, it comes down to what kind of formal guidance is the Fed going to give the markets about how long they intend to stay at this sort of maximum setting of of rates being near zero and buying lots of bonds, um, or or otherwise explaining what it would take, what sort of conditions would eventually make them get off of zero. Everybody knows that's going to be a long time, but the market can be quite reassured and that can help 
lower long-term rates if the Fed is more explicit about the conditions it would take for it to get away from zero. And so I guess inflation is something that everyone's constantly thinking about, maybe some more so than than others, but, but how does that play into this whole equation and, and theory and prediction game of what they do, Chris? Well, as you know, the, the Fed has two mandates, and that's right. to keep prices stable, which they interpret as, as trying to keep uh, inflation at or around 2%, uh, and otherwise to, to uh, have maximum sustainable employment. So keep unemployment low, in other words. Uh, and there's been this debate over, you know, how should they signal what it would take for them to move? Should they, should they connect it to what happens in unemployment or inflation? Well, the minute that came out last week made it pretty clear that a large part of the committee is leaning heavily towards linking any future significant movements in, in policy to the performance of inflation. So, how, how, you know, essentially they're leaning toward a position and this is not finalized, I want to stress, but they're leaning towards a position that would say something like, we're not going to move off zero until inflation reaches at least 2%, and indeed would like to see it go above that target for some period of time before we really start to get going on rates, um, so- which is a very interesting position and links to the 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 longer-term review that they were doing of policy and right. their policy tools before this crisis even hit. So, Chris, that's to me, when I hear that explanation, uh, which makes sense, it's clear, but it's also clear to me that we're going to be lower rates for longer because I'm just not sure what gets us to a level sustainably above 2% inflation. Right. You're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, if you look at the... Uh, uh, projections, the economic projections that Fed officials have submitted most recently, they really don't expect um, the Fed funds rate to move off of zero until at least 2023. Wow. So, I mean, it it seems strange to talk about adding these qualifiers on now, but the, the fact is the market investors will still change their behavior if they're reassured in another way that the Fed is not going to move away from zero for quite a long time, for instance, by saying until inflation exceeds 2%. That really does have a real impact on yields. It has an impact even on stocks. Um, So overall, we'll ease financial conditions if they follow through with this. I mean, I just want to pause for a second and marvel at that afresh, Chris and Paul. You know, this idea that 2023, I mean, it just it's one of those other things of so many that if you said to someone six months ago, a year ago, five years ago, that in mid-2020, this is what we're going to be talking about when it comes mm-hmm. to interest rate. I mean, no one would believe you. It, it feels like it feels like fiction so unbelievable that people would be like, try again. Come on. That's silly. Right? Well, but he, here's the thing, Jason, though. We, we never knew when exactly we were going to hit a recession or what exactly would cause it. But there was already a lot of preparation for this, uh, this situation that we found ourselves in with, with uh, a recession yeah. very quickly moving rates to zero. We already knew. I mean, they had only reached a maximum of, I think, 
two and a half percent. Right. The Fed was long worried about what would happen when the next downturn came, how much ammunition they would have, what would they do when they got to the zero lower bound. So it's not like, yes, it's absolutely uh, a surprise that we got here, you know, who would have thought of this in February? Right. But, you know, (laughs) we're in a situation, though, that is... uh, Otherwise predictable, though, in terms. Yeah, of I guess my point is more. I guess my point, Chris, is I I still marvel at that that idea that they're very confident about saying, "Look, it's going to be twenty three before we really revisit this." <laughs> I mean, that that to me is mind boggling. Yes, it's a long way out, but it's. I think it just comes down to them not imagining, you know, uh, uh, things improving enough before yeah. then. Um, it speaks to their expectation that unemployment will remain very high. We're, we're seeing, as you know, a really strong bounce back yep. uh, in employment. Um, a lot of people are coming back to work, but the expectation really is that that bounce back will peter out before we've gotten anywhere close to back where we were in February. And then we'll have a very long, difficult slog Right. trying to get it down to, you know, say even down below 5%, whereas we were at 3.5% and, and that's where, yeah, and that's where that dual mandate comes in. You're exactly yeah. right. Absolutely. Chris Condon, thanks so much for joining us. Chris is a Federal Reserve and U.S. economy reporter for Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head up to New Hampshire. Check in with Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. Paul, he is a regular on this show. I know you know him yep. uh, as well. His stuff on China and specifically on Hong Kong is must read for sure. Yep. Uh, and his column today is no exception. Hong Kong's new reality arrives in force and what a whirlwind it's been there over the past few weeks. Andy, uh, on the phone with this. So, Andy... I don't think we've really gotten a chance to kind of dig in with you uh, since really all of this happened in such a meaningful way there. What's your initial reaction before we get into the meat of your column in terms of what's happened to Hong Kong and between Hong Kong and Beijing over the past couple of weeks? Well, look, we have to be very clear about what's happened here. This is a premature takeover of Hong Kong by mainland Chinese authorities. Um, Hong Kong's autonomy, uh, one country, two systems, was supposed to last for 50 years after the 1997 handover. And the passage of this new national security law really brings that one country, two systems towards a close and ushers in a period where one country uh, is far, far more important than the two systems. So, and the, uh, you know, I was there in 1997 during the handover, just coincidentally on business, and I remember thinking to myself, this is not going to end well. I don't buy the 50-year thing. Uh, there was just too much value in Hong Kong to see China just, you know, not maximize it, if you will. Is this kind of the end of Hong Kong as we know it? I really, I really think, I really think it is. Um, uh, I think what we can expect to see now is um, an increased pace of emigration from the city. The moneyed, professional, educated classes, I think, are going to start to leave. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is an acceptance by business um, that there is a different reality in Hong Kong and that, as in China, politics are in command. Hmm. And so, Andy, 
and this is a parochial question, and I feel like I always end up asking you this, but I feel like I have to, which is I think about our customers, I think about our listeners and, and viewers, and many of them are in financial services. Many of them work for companies who have built, as you are much more aware than I am, massive outposts in, in Hong Kong. What's the future of those jobs, of that assignment that so many people you know, took advantage of to sort of build out their resume and build out their sort of global cred by going to Hong Kong? Well, I think it's going to be much less of a global city and much more of a city that's inwardly focused on China and its financial needs. Um, look, this new national security law criminalizes a whole range of political activity and expression and undermines the judiciary, the, the independence of the judiciary, which underpins a free society. Um, and to that extent, it's going to have a big immediate impact on many professionals um, operating in Hong Kong. Legal professionals are an obvious example, media, publishing. Um, you know, and the whole NGO world is going to be looking at this with quite some nervousness. Yeah. Um, but also economic analysis and forecasting, brokerage research. These are very sensitive areas within, within China. And people engaged in all of these areas are going to start to ask, them, ask themselves, do I really have a future in this, in this, in this territory? Andy, is there a front runner for who might over the coming years and decades take the place of Hong Kong as you know, one of Asia's most vibrant uh, economic and financial hubs? Yeah, I think probably, um, you know, many of the functions, the international functions that um, Hong Kong was so masterful at handling will um, scatter to other financial centers in Asia, to Singapore, to Tokyo. Tokyo and Taipei are actively courting um, Chinese business. But, you know, in the, in the, in the short term, at least, uh, it could actually be a boost uh, to Hong Kong. I mean, you're seeing companies lining up, foreign companies as well as domestic companies lining up to show their support for this new national security law. And there, there is a sort of a relief, right, that, you know, the violence and vandalism that accompanied these mass protests, demonstrations for democracy really brought much of Hong Kong's economy uh, to, to heal. And yet the very fact that they're lining up to show their support um, is, is also a highly negative signal. Again, it's showing that, you know, in, in the new Hong Kong, um, the CCP calls the shots. Woe betide Hong Kong companies that don't toe the party line. Yeah, pretty, pretty amazing. All right. Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Interesting developments here in the economy as the world really tries to deal with the economic fallout from the pandemic and 
Various states of shutdown impacts across all industries. Uh, now, as the U.S. tries to reopen, uh, we'll have to see how that proceeds on a state-by-state, region-by-region basis. And that certainly applies to the housing market. So to get the latest, we welcome Sam uh, Dunlap. Sam's the Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategies at Angel Oak Capital Advisors. $9.1 billion under management calls. It joins us on the phone from Atlanta. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. Just give us a sense of kind of... If you can give us a 30,000 30, foot view of kind of the housing market in this country. So many regions have been hit differently. The one common denominator is rock, I mean, absolutely rock bottom uh, uh, mortgage rates should be some support. But we know there's a lot of variables out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You know, I, I think, you know, prior to, you know, the COVID-19 crisis that, that clearly we uh, that began this year, we were pretty bullish and optimistic on 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 the outlook for U.S. housing going into into the COVID crisis, and really coming out of it, uh, we're even more so. Really, to your point, not only due to the uh, all-time lows that we see in mortgage rates, and perhaps even headed lower, is that the Fed is clearly committed here at the zero bound and and getting an even more important rate, the primary and secondary mortgage rate, even lower, which we, we think will be very helpful and supportive for. Uh, really improving the affordability aspect of U.S. housing, but really the key going into the COVID crisis was just the really tight supply and demand dynamic for U.S. housing. Uh, we think that's even going to be even more pronounced as we come out of the COVID crisis as just the demand for single-family housing is just going to increase. And are there, I mean, I, I know you think a, a lot about it, and as a former Atlanta and I do too, Sam, I mean, you think about the Sun Belt and uh, kind of how explosive the growth has been in the housing markets in some of those big cities as, as we think about those different markets. I mean, are there different kind of immigration patterns and immigration patterns that start to affect how we think about housing stock and how we think about various markets here? Yeah, you know, we really took a step back and thought about it, you know, as we're looking at our mid-year outlook and looking ahead after the after the pandemic emerged. And we really see some trends. Uh, we see the COVID outbreak is really positive for the suburbs as we see more and more Americans perhaps leaving some of the uh, metro areas and, and the multifamily developments and headed more towards the suburbs where, you know, single family can clearly provide a yard and uh, perhaps a retreat if we, you know, we have a second wave and, and subsequent shutdowns of local economies. We we see that as largely supportive for the suburbs. And then, uh, you know, let's not let's not forget the collapse that we've seen in crude and just the drop and and prices at the pump. That should really further corroborate perhaps a, a trend of the suburbs as just the cost of getting to and from work uh, as we do get going again in the in the aftermath of the COVID crisis. Perhaps even more supportive for the demand for for housing in the suburbs. Sam, talk to us about credit quality here. We've got, uh, you know, a lot of borrowers uh, out of work now, and I suspect that we're going to start seeing that, uh, you know, mortgage delinquencies and credit cards and so on and so forth. What are you seeing so far in the housing market in these early, relatively early times here? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, is is um, you know early, you know, foreclosure moratoriums and the mortgage forbearance programs that we've seen have, have really, I would say. Uh, we're, we're in the crosshairs of our credit investors as, as folks are worried about what would the ultimate delinquencies look like, at least for, for now, uh, what we're, uh, borrowers are estimated from a forbearance perspective to be in the, for, you know, the high single digits, eight to nine percent from a forbearance perspective. And so, uh, while we expect delinquencies in mortgage credit as we look ahead, clearly due to the 
unfortunate impact of a significant amount of job loss. And thinking about the headline unemployment rate at about 11%, that coincides with where we're seeing delinquencies broadly across mortgage credit. But I think what gives us confidence and and why we're optimistic is is credit investors and where we focus predominantly in in RMBS is just the collateral that backs RMBS is that, you know, even amid a pending default that that we expect coming forward in, in the next couple of months is, uh, you know, the stability of that collateral value being U.S. homes, really supported by all the things we touched on, uh, you know, the improved affordability and also just the really tight supply and demand of U.S. housing should keep prices stable. And, uh, you know, when the, when the ultimate recovery happens through the unfortunate foreclosure event that, that would result as, as, as the uh, delinquencies remain high. Sam, we've been talking a lot today on this show, and I feel like we talk about it every day. And I think, uh, Paul, on your regular gig, uh, Bloomberg Markets, you talk about this as well. Um, the Fed and, and just the absolute power that it's had and the efficacy that it's had and all the actions that Jay Powell and his uh, pals have taken there. Uh, what comes next from the Fed in your estimation, Sam? You know, we just couldn't agree more. And listening to your program early on, just the significant amount of stimulus is just it's hard to describe how beneficial that's been to, to all risk markets, but particularly as it relates to the consumer and, and getting that transmission mechanism, particularly through these lower mortgage rates, to the U.S. borrowers. And we think that's really, really important as we sit here at the lower bound for a long time. Uh, I think one of your previous guests was, was highlighting the fact that, you know, we could expect to be here at the zero bound until 2023 and, yep. and just seeing the commitment for the, the Fed to not, uh, you know, wait till inflation is perhaps running much higher than 2% their previous target, really let things go here. Uh, but keeping that transmission me- mechanism low through buying so many agency mortgages here, we just think it's so supportive for risk markets and so supportive for lowering bar- borrowing costs, particularly for U.S. homeowners. Sam, how important is it for you to get the, another round of fiscal stimulus out of the U.S. Congress here? We think it'd be important for, for consumer credit in particular. Uh, you know, I think the key, though, uh, as I pointed out, is, is really in structured credit investors thinking about the collateral that backs the, the bonds that we target. We, we, we really favor areas like U.S. housing just because of the, you know, the, the stability of the U.S. house looking forward for RMBS and, and areas like auto ABS where we see, you know, improving uh, vehicle valuations here and more of a V-shaped light recovery in areas of consumer credit. So even if we see an uptick in delinquencies due to the lack of additional fiscal stimulus here, really looking to, you know, the collateral values and applying appropriate stress metrics as we look forward. But I think the key here and, and, and you know, if you couple both the fiscal and monetary stimulus, the cash mountain that's been created up to this point is definitely pointing from our perspective as we look to the balance of the year as more of a V-shaped rebound. We have a long slog, clearly, to get back to previous GDP levels, but we think the economy is well-positioned just given this cash mountain to do so. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Sam Dum- Sam Dunlap, excuse me, Chief Investment Officer of Public Strategies at Angel Oak Capital Advisors, joining us on the phone from Atlanta. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.